0: Hello, and welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. This episode, we're covering The Lottery by Shirley Jackson, which was originally published in The New Yorker in 1948. This is the story that won our most recent Patreon vote. It was also nominated by one of our supporters at the Keeper level, where you get to do that, which is pretty awesome. Uh, The other stories that made it are The Ammonite Violin by Caitlin R. Kiernan. I've only read a little bit of Kiernan, so I'm really excited about this one. And we're going to finally, finally get our second dose of Lovecraft with The Beast in the Cave, which is one of his very early stories. I think he wrote this one as a teenager, in fact. And then we'll cover our first story by Sheridan Le Fanu, the the great Irish writer of ghost stories and other weird fiction, including a famous vampire story that I think people probably have read. And the story of his that we'll read is an authentic narrative of a haunted house. I'm convinced that it is going to be authentic, so that'll be fun. And then we'll finish up this batch by covering the runner-up on Patreon, and that's the story Johannes Cabal and the Blustery Day by Jonathan L. Howard. This is another story that was nominated by a supporter And I'm excited for all these stories. It was a a lot of fun for me to tally up the votes. Some of them were quite close. And in fact, there were some great stories that didn't make it, including Edgar Allan Poe's piece, The Sphinx, which needed just one more vote to get in. It was very, very close. But of course, that's part of the fun of doing this this way. And I want to thank everyone for participating and, of course, for supporting the network and making these shows possible. Yeah, I just want to echo your thanks, Glenn, and remind our listeners to let
1: other people know about... Eldersign, a weird fiction podcast, and the whole Clay Temple Media Network. The more people listening, the more happy we are. I'm so excited to be covering the lottery today. This is maybe the third or fourth time I've read this story, and every time I read it, I find new things to appreciate about this story. It is an absolute masterpiece. And I think this story is going to be familiar to a lot of readers. This is a major piece of American pop culture, I feel like. But even if that's the case. uh, We're still going to do our classic episode structure. So, Glenn,
0: let's just get started with the recap. It's June 27th in a small village in New England. It's around 10 a.m., and people have begun to gather for the lottery. Now, we don't know what the lottery is for, and it's going to be a while before we do, but we're told that this is a, a regional custom. Other villages have lotteries, too, and the larger villages even have to take two full days for the process. And this lottery requires the presence of every single inhabitant of the village. And Jackson introduces us to the the different communities within this village. First, we meet the children because they're the first people to to gather in the village square this morning. School has just ended, so they're still not used to their freedom. And as they gather, they're even still talking about things that happened during the, the previous school year the boys are looking ahead to the day's activity, and they fill their pockets with stones. And some industrious boys even make a pile of rocks, which becomes the the object of a a sort of game that these boys are playing with each other, some kind of uh, King of the Hill style game. The girls are less rambunctious and, and seem even a little bit guarded this morning. They're standing among themselves, they're talking quietly, they're kind of keeping an eye on the boys, in fact. The men arrive a little bit later, talking about the things they have in common, planting and the rain, tractors and taxes. And then finally, the women arrive. And and this signals that the lottery is about to begin. And so the children join their parents, and the the individual households are now distinct clusters in the village square.
1: I think the opening to this story is absolutely brilliant, especially given the type of story that Jackson is going to unravel for us, uh, you know, in the coming pages. Uh, Shirley Jackson describes a sort of picturesque ideal image of a small town or village, and I think the word "village" here is actually really important. Even though we get the hallmarks of a town—a bank, a school, and a post office—we uh, know, you know, this this event, the lottery, which I think for us, given the language that Shirley Jackson surrounds it with, has a real positive connotation, is going to happen, and. You know, even though we get the sense that the kids are picking up rocks and are gonna and playing, you know, protect the rock mound, it feels like they're just playing games. Like they're preparing for a rock fight. We don't know what these rocks are for, and people are talking about banal topics and they're laughing and smiling and everybody's running around. And I, I want to live in this village at this moment. She writes a really, really great place to live. But I think just as a note of craft, one thing I want to point out uh, for people who have read this story and aren't just listening along with us is how much Jackson focuses her language on laughing and smiling and joviality. Um, the people in the story at this point are feeling really good. And Jackson does a lot of work to get us as readers to buy in to the
0: kind of bonhomie of the town. Right, this whole scene feels like Stars Hollow, right This is like the start of a really uh, like a quirky episode of Gilmore Girls. In fact, this may have actually inspired the Gilmore girls uh, i want to live I want to believe we live in a universe where that 's true <laughs> and it 's a, a lottery right that 's I, I want to win a lottery that sounds great it 's cool this town 's all getting together and they 're going to you know draw lots and give something away. This sounds like a really great way to to spend a you know a, a day near midsummer engaging in some kind of community building activity. And I'm excited to see what the lottery is actually for. Oh, yes. We'll find out. (laughs) Well, at last, Mr. Summers arrives, and he's the one who's going to be conducting the lottery. And he seems to occupy several unique positions in the village. Running the lottery is an obvious one. But also, he and his wife have no children, and he also operates the the coal business. And so he might be the most bourgeois person in the village, and, and that might actually even be why he's the one running the lottery. Mr. Summers has with him the black box, which holds the scraps of paper that are going to be drawn during the lottery. The box itself is in pretty bad shape, and and Mr. Summers has wanted to make a new box for some time, but people are worried about altering tradition this box is already itself a replacement for the previous box, though it is said to have been built with pieces of that previous box. But no one in the village was even alive when this new box was constructed. Not even Mr. Warner, who I think is in his 90s, if my math is is right here. And we're told here that this lottery has been conducted every single year since the village was founded, or at least that people believe that. And so we're talking about a custom here that is centuries old.
1: Yeah, I'm really in awe of how well Jackson controls the story here. Glenn, you did a great job of recapping you know, the really crucial information that she doles out. But Jackson has actually buried this in information in the story so that it's really easy to skim over. And, and the, the technique she uses to do this is to have Mr. Summers be really concerned about the lottery box, and it's need to be refurbished, and the town people don't care about it. And she's creating conflict without directing re- the reader to the really important information in this section, uh, which is about the fact that nobody remembers why they do this ritual. They just do it. And creating conflict is usually designed to direct the reader's attention to what's important in a story. All stories exist, you know, to resolve some sort of conflict, or many stories do, or at least to show us how people are working through a conflict. And so, what we should really be concerned about as readers, as re-readers of this story, is the fact, as I said, that nobody really knows what the original paraphernalia for the lottery was, and you know, we're going to learn more of what's been forgotten about this lottery as the story continues. And I, it just and kind of coming across this technique in the story kind of it just stopped me dead as a brilliant bit of writing craft as as misdirection i don't think i've seen it done so kind of barely and well on a page before
0: Right, this all kind of seems like set dressing or something at this point of the story. I think on your first read, especially if, if you're reading this in high school like like I did, this is stuff that you're kind of wanting to skim past. You're like, Oh well these these are just kind of background details. Let's get to the actual point of the story. But This actually is the point of the story, right? These are the things that actually matter. But we're getting this as a kind of slice of life here, right? As if we're actually present in the scene. So she's not spoon feeding us what's important. It's embedded in other stuff. It it really is a fantastic technique. Well, before the lottery can begin, Mr. Summers is sworn in as the officiant by Mr. Graves, who is the town postmaster. Uh, these names of people, by the way, I think are going to be important. Uh, I'm not going to point them all out. I think that we will talk about them in the discussion. This uh, this swearing in ceremony, this part of the ritual has also changed over the centuries. And people are aware that there there used to be more ceremony to it than this, that there used to be a sort of chant or a song and that there was even a special salute that the officiant gave to each person as they came up to draw from the box. But all of these things have lapsed and people don't remember anymore the specific forms of those things. They just remember that uh, something, the kind of vague outline of what it used to be. And so we get the sense that this used to have uh, a lot more trappings than it does, maybe even the, the trappings of a, a religious ceremony. But it's been kind of secularized in a way, or at least that might be one way of, of thinking about it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think Jackson is doing a great job of giving us a sense of the familiar, of something we can all latch onto as readers, is what, how, of how towns function, while adding in bits of really strange goings on this town and much of the larger society that the town is a part of is organized in terms of heads of households and the whole system of households kind of makes up the organization of the community and this feels very agrarian to me but you know i want to point out again that there are these modern institutions like the post office and the bank and these you know parochial schools that feel like the industrial schools that we have today and This town, we learn, is a really small town. There's only about 300 people in it. So even in these small towns, there are these touches of modernity, which is, I think, why, Glenn, you feel that this is a a secularized uh, version of something that was once sacred. And I just think this is extraordinarily subtle world building. And again, this is stuff that's really easy to skim over the first time you read the story. And Jackson, again, reminds us that so much of the original meaning of the ritual is lost
0: but everyone still thinks it's important to go through the motions it's it's incredible one of the things that has changed, one of the details that we're given here is that because the village is actually larger now, 300 people is quite a lot of people for this village, that they've had to switch from from using pieces of, of wood or pieces of, of bark to pieces of paper in order to have a, a, a drawing for every person in the village It fit in the box. This is a, a more recent change that, that some of the people present do remember. They're aware that this change has happened. I guess Mr. Summers is actually the one who had proposed this some time ago, you know, a few decades ago or so, and the response to this, though, by some of the older people, is actually pretty negative, and they think of Mr. Summers as this young radical who has, you know, brought about this uh, this crazy change. And there is something interesting here. This predates the Second Vatican Council. Uh, this story by, I guess, about fifteen years. But we talk about that council from time to time on the Gene Wolf literary podcast, where sometimes that's in the background of some of the things that the Gene Wolf is doing. It's in the background of some of the the r a. Lafferty work that we've covered at, at lafcon and and elsewhere on the podcast as well. And that was a polarizing event when the, the the church convened a council and changed a lot of its rituals and, and and sometimes in some dramatic ways like allowing the vernacular language to be used in rituals for example and this feels like exactly that type of response where people don't want to to alter these traditions right and we see this primarily coming from old man
1: Warner who puts a lot of stock in the lottery as we'll find out and gets angry when he learns that other places uh, in this greater society are maybe abandoning the ritual of the lottery. Yeah, and also caught up in this moment is uh, a latecomer named Mrs. Hutchinson, and she seems totally unconcerned and she is laughing and kind of playing along with everybody else. And we're just treated to all of these character moments of which, you know, these old man Warner cranky moments are a part, and they really do a lot to put the reader at ease.
0: Right. Mrs. Hutchison comes in and she's joking about having forgotten what day it is and got caught up in in doing her dishes. Uh, We're going to come to find out what this lottery is like, you know, in a few minutes now. And I find it hard to believe that she has forgotten what day it is. that She's lost track of when this lottery is going to happen i think if i lived in this village i would know exactly when when this was at all times exactly how many days since the last incident it has been all right so the the lottery gets going and at first this just involves the the heads of families going up to draw from the box so it's not individuals yet it's the the heads of families and this is not especially interesting so jackson mostly focuses on the conversations that people are having while the, waiting their their turn we learned that some of the nearby villages, as you you said, Brandon, are are talking about not doing the lottery anymore. And in fact, some of these villages have already stopped. Old man Warner has a lot to say about this foolishness. And he even reminds people of the old saying, lottery in June, corn be heavy soon. And this is really our first indication that this lottery is a holdover from some kind of fertility ritual, I, I guess, that it's about ensuring the prosperity of the village for the next year. Though, of course, we still don't know what people are are drawing these slips of of paper for.
1: I think Jackson does another really, really amazing thing. And in the edition that we're reading, uh, there's a paragraph break that totally changes the the tone of the story, but it's, it's very subtle. And it's rooted really in her control of the language in the story. She starts talking about how nervous everybody's getting and people stop smiling and there's silence. And it's like she just took this vacuum and sucked all of the frivolity and good humor and laughing from the language of the story up to this point. It immediately immediately gives the sense to the reader that something has changed, that they're not sure what, but this lottery maybe isn't as good as we thought it was. It's just another craft note that I wanted to make to point out why this story is canonized and why it's taught. This is full of really strong craft style and technique
0: skills from Shirley Jackson. It's a real tonal shift. And and once we're aware of it, and especially once we are aware of what's actually happening, the climax of the story, it's possible to go back and reread the sort of joie de vivre at the beginning as actually nervous laughter before something serious is about to happen. People are trying to kind of fool themselves. I think it's not actually going to turn out to be to have been this this joyous, fun community building occasion that it seems like it is at first. Right. And
1: she just does an amazing job of of ratcheting tension up from here to the end of the story. And even at the very end of the story, uh, we see even innocent behavior at the beginning put into a new light.
0: Okay, well, we're at the climax of the story now. So we'll stop beating around the bush. Here. We'll get to what the lottery actually is. All the heads of the families have drawn a slip. So now it is time to open them up and see which family has the one with the black mark. And it's the Hutchinsons who we, we met earlier. And the, the matriarch of the, the family, this is the woman who arrived late, is distraught about this. She says that her husband wasn't given enough time to choose his slip of paper, and it wasn't fair, and, and so on. And, and this is our first indication that this might not be a lottery you want to win. That's phase one of the lottery. So so now we're ready for phase two. The Hutchinsons are a family that is just a single household. It's Mr. Hutchinson and Mrs. Hutchison, and their three kids. So now there will be another drawing with five slips of paper, one for each of them, including the kids, One of whom is 11, and another of whom is maybe four or five, possibly even a little bit younger than that. This little boy has to have his hand held constantly. And there is a lot of tension surrounding which of them has the paper with the black mark on it. And people are relieved when it turns out not to be any of the kids, but that leaves just the parents, Tess and Bill. And it's not Bill, so that means it's Tess. And again, Tess, Mrs. Hutchison here, cries out that it isn't fair. And she's really panicked now. She's gone from distraught to to panic. And at this point, Jackson's narrative voice returns here. And she tells us that even though a lot of the ritual surrounding the lottery has been forgotten, people still remember to use stones. Mrs. Delacroix and Mrs. Dunbar hurry to pick up some stones from the pile that the boys had made earlier. But Mrs. Dunbar tells her friend that she just can't run that well anymore, so she probably won't be able to keep up once it gets going. The kids, of course, all have stones already. We have saw the boys shoving stones in their pockets at the start of the story. And even Davy Hutchison, this is the, the little boy, the little son of Tess, he has a few pebbles in his hand. And then Tess Hutchison is surrounded. She's in the middle of an open space in a circle of people and a stone hits her on the side of the head. And the last line of the story is this. It isn't fair. It isn't right, Mrs. Hutchison screamed. And then they were upon her.
1: Yeah, it's such a dark ending. I think it's amazing what she does here. the The way the stones are really only mentioned about twice in the story, once in the beginning, you know, in terms of this playful uh, boys game and then at the end as you realize they're hoarding stones for this stoning of one of their members. It's incredible and there are so many reasons why this story works on a premise that I think would be challenging to pull off if Jackson wasn't so in control of her craft. And, and those are some of the things we're going to talk about in our discussion. So I really just want to start with some of the the basics of the story here. And I want to ask you, Glenn, what kind of society is this really? I, I mentioned how this society is really reminiscent of the structure of agrarian s- societies. It's rooted in households um, and rituals and all the all this sort of trappings. But Glenn, what is your take on the type of world that Jackson builds by showing us this village, which is really a, a microcosm of the larger society? And you mentioned you know, there
0: might be something to the names of this story as well. Well I think one of the things that we've we've pointed out as we've been talking is that this is a story about a small town in, in rural America that is undergoing some changes in the aftermath of the, the Second World War, after the, the Depression and the intense industrialization that the the war effort has and the the population boom and so on, and other types of, of technological changes and This is a town that is is grappling with its customs in some way, or it's a region in which towns, villages are grappling with their customs. And we see the two poles of that, right? There's this real sense that this ritual, this scapegoating, this stoning that they do as a kind of fertility ritual every year is this very old custom that dates from the, the moment of the founding of this village. And then we have these very recent institutions, things like the the post office, which you know might have been around for a century or so at this point, but you know it was still a, a new idea, the post office, right? And the, the public school and there's there's a coal industry in town, right? And we're told that 300 people is a, a lot that there has been a population boom. And this has changed some material aspect of the of the ritual. And so we do also see that although this is a community that is agricultural in nature, uh, the men when they show up are talking about tractors and taxes, they're talking about the rain, right, as if these things matter, we get told that the whole point of the ritual is uh, yeah, lottery in June, corn will be awesome soon right and 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 that's the whole point is to make the the crops grow and so that's the the point of the village but then of course right there has been industrialization since this ritual has happened and so there must be people in this town who are also doing the actual coal mining. It can't just be that Mr. Summers operates a coal business. There have to be some people working for that. And so there's a, a sense here that this is a community in, in flux at this moment. And I've said that this is a small town in New England. That is not explicit in the text. Uh, there are some ways that I think that we know that this is New England, though. One of them is that Shirley Jackson lived in New England. She lived in a, a very small town in Vermont, and that was a town that she and her husband had moved to And she felt ostracized. She felt like an outsider in that town. And she writes about this in a number of her stories. This is a central theme of her novel, We Have Always Lived in the Castle, which I read just a few months ago for another podcasting project that will be uh, in the future. Uh, People will, will hear more about that. But I think another way that we know that this is New England, not just the biography of Shirley Jackson, is in fact in these names, right? the all of these names are anglo names they are either english or scottish or or welsh and then with one exception which is the the delacroix family which is the, perhaps the one french family but hey yeah, it's vermont it's got a french name there were french settlers here at some point as well And so I think that those are the ways that we know that this is New England. So we can kind of conjure that up in our minds and be thinking about exactly how old this settlement is, right? Because if we think that this is like Wisconsin or something, then this ritual maybe has only been going on since the 19th century. But since this is New England, I think that we're meant to understand that this has been going on for possibly 300 years, possibly three centuries or two and a half centuries, a a really long time, right? And, And I think that's important. One of the other ways that I think that we know that this is in New England as well is that the the most important family in this story is the Hutchinsons. And this has to call to mind Anne Hutchinson, who is the the most famous of the witches from the Salem witch trials. And I'll say in high school, we read this story as uh, my junior year of high school as part of a unit in which we, previous to this, had uh, read Arthur Miller's The Crucible. I think we actually also read Ray Bradbury's uh, The Pedestrian* after this as part of uh, our all sort of a part of a evil society unit or something that we were, we were doing. I'm sure that's what it was called. (laughs) They were
1: training, training you how to live in an evil society.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. So I think, I think that's the the setting that we're, we're dealing with.
1: Yeah, I think that's really great. I'm fascinated by uh, the way you brought in World War II and industrialization and the Great Depression into this story. Because I read this story is almost historically adjacent to our own history rather than being in the stream of our own American history that this this village is almost outside of time. And maybe it's because it's all the weird fiction we've been reading that this sort of ritual uh, that everybody's forgotten the meaning of but is still really important. You, you call it a fertility ritual and I do want to drill down on that a little bit in a moment. I can tell by the way the story is written that we're meant to assume that this ritual is outdated or outmoded and that this is some sort of commentary on leftover practices from some earlier period of time but there's not a sense that there's not a sense in the story that these uh villagers are recipients of mass communication in any way other than the post and so I do want to ask you if we can For a second, read the story as if it's outside of the stream of American history up until this point. uh, It's not about contemporary American history. Why is it, do you think, that other villages are pulling away from this ritual? What is causing the change in society as if this were a weird fiction tale instead of uh, a sort of. Odd customs tale. What is causing what would cause a change in a society for some people to abandon a ritual like this? If advances in advancements in science were being published and people were able to say like, hey, this is actually what makes crops grow, not murdering one of our citizens every year. How is any of this ritual
0: defensible? And why isn't it changing everywhere? Right. One of the questions that I have about this is how widespread is this practice that like the FBI doesn't know about this, right? Where's Fox Mulder? So we don't really quite know how big of an area we're dealing with. But I think that the the, the change that's happening here is, is less actually about knowledge and than it is about what people are doing for a living. It's actually about demographics. It's about industrialization and the fact that that everyone in the village is no longer economically dependent on agriculture. Some of the families still are, certainly. But there's this coal business. And I think that's an extremely important detail that perhaps 50% of the people in the village now work at the coal business. And and so the prosperity of the town is no longer tied to agriculture. And so it means that even if you're well aware that this type of ritual can't possibly have any bearing on whether or not your crops are going to grow, but if you are totally dependent on that, if everyone in the village is dependent on that, Even if intellectually you recognize that that's true, you just might not be willing to take that chance. I'm a lifelong and diehard Cubs fan. And I firmly believe, even though I also firmly know it's nonsense, that my sock wearing habits have a massive impact on the success of that team. It's ridiculous, but I actually believe that in like some way, like I really am superstitious about that. And so I can see this, this happening, this kind of inertia of like, well, But maybe let's not take the risk. It's too important. But as people no longer have personal things at stake, that they actually feel like maybe it doesn't matter if the rain is awesome this year or not. I'm still going to have my coal mining job. That they're not willing to kill someone for that, the way that they might be otherwise.
1: Yeah, I wonder if it's just superstition that's driving this behavior uh, in the rituals. Uh, You know, Even old man Warner, who... Who is the oldest person in the town and remembers certain things about how it used to be? He doesn't even know the origin of the lottery or what the chance were or any of the original meaning behind this ritual. And I think you're right in saying it's a it's a fertility right. I did want to play devil's advocate a little bit. I don't know how fruitful it would be and ask you know. What if it's not? <laughs> what, if, <you> know, <laughs> what if? What if they really are stopping some old one from rising again? I, I've been reading way too much weird fiction, and so it's just on my mind as I read this. What if Old Man Ward is right, and the, you know the town is going to be consumed by some dark evil? Even though this story is clearly about a society in transition, but I I, I, I don't think that's a that's a good path to go down. It's a fun kind of counterfactual question, but I do I do want to ask you you know even as even though the oldest person in the town has no knowledge of the original meaning of the event or its original customs or why everybody did it, and it's so violent that he, and and the children participate in it uh, apart from superstition i mean how can you why do people think there's still merit to this? what is the worst that happens if they stop. I mean, it's it's crazy to me to think that, they, that this whole village would continue to participate just on superstition. They are killing one of their community members.
0: And we're left at the end with this haunting image of this little boy who's going to throw stones. He's going to participate in killing his own mother. There's a real sense that Bill Hutchinson is going to have to participate in the murder of his wife. This is unfathomable to to me. I mean, I would move, right? I mean, you know, that does, and and that's something that should be possible for these people as well, even though I think we can assume that this is a a poor community. I still think that there's got... I still feel like this is something that has to have been an option for them, but yet somehow none of them take that option. There are a couple of other interesting features about this town. I mean, we talked about some of the institutions that are present, but we haven't talked about some that aren't there are no religious leaders at this ritual. That's really interesting. But there's also not any sense, even though this has the trappings of a fertility ritual, there, there, there is no sense that this is some kind of actual, fully fleshed out pagan religion. There's no sense that these people are not Christians. And in fact, I think it's quite important, in fact, that the, the Delacroix family is in this story. That's Delacroix, though Jackson makes a, a note that they want the Anglo pronunciation of that as Delacroix. This means of the cross, right? This is a, an explicitly Christian name. And th- this is where this is called attention to in the story.
1: Right. And the only other sort of ritual we get me- mention of in this story is the Halloween festival that this town does. So that is still kind of caught up in in, in, in an odd sort of ancient pagan custom. How does all this get to America and take such deep root, not in just a small town, but this whole region. I mean, she is, and 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 it's those questions that lead me to to think about this being sort of historically uh, adjacent in terms of a, a timeline, rather than
0: in our own time stream. Well, this is almost like a like an inverse Thanksgiving, right? It's New England. There's. Colonial settlers here who are having some trouble making crops grow here for you know variety of, of factors not which are which are mostly just about not knowing the environment not knowing the crops not knowing the weather uh, maybe arriving at the wrong time and so on where you know Thanksgiving is a celebration it's it's a feast right it's a, it really is a genuine coming together of, of of family units to to love one another and be thankful for prosperity. He, this is a dark mirror of that. This is a community that is afraid of not having prosperity, and and in giving into that fear actually does harm to a member of, it, of its community and its families having to murder members of, of their own family, people having to murder members of their own family in order to stave off the threat to their prosperity, right? So it's the, the dark mirror of Thanksgiving, and so yeah, I think the idea of, of 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 seeing it as almost a kind of mirror universe uh, America rather than the actual America of 1948 is a, a really good idea, right? This is Jackson using speculative fiction to hold up this dark mirror to us. And I think for Jackson, this was intensely personal. She and her husband were New Yorkers. I mean, New York City people, uh, members of the East Coast intellectual elite. And they moved to this rural community in Vermont because her husband, who was a, a, an important literary critic of the time, had taken a job as a professor at, uh, I think, North Bennington College, something along those lines. And, you know, when you're a freelance writer, it's nice to be offered a gig that's going to have some stability and some some health insurance and so on. So they took that job and, and left New York City. And they had a real bad experience of life in their town. They loved the the, the college, and he loved teaching but he was Jewish, and this was a problem socially for them, that they felt ostracized by the community that she saw as, as being puritanical, as being this real holdover from the, the 17th century, from colonial times, and that they were mal treated uh, by the, the community, not in the sense of actually being literally stoned, but as not being welcome into the community, and, and small things happening to them, you know, not being greeted with a smile, not uh, ever being addressed properly she talked about groceries being loaded into their, their bags in a way that was aggressive and, and dismissive. You know, these these small kind of things, I guess we call them microaggressions now, right? Do they, this is, we're, we're aware that these are things, petty things, passive aggressive things that people can do to one another, that they have this experience. And I think that's a big part of what this story is about. But that she's dialed that up to 11 here to talk about what the experience feels like for her.
1: Right. And she also didn't have the greatest home life uh, either. and And I think that's a big Part of it is that sort of trauma at home or experience or difficult experiences at home laid the groundwork for her, her to feel unwelcome when maybe she needed to find a friend or uh, some community member to rely on as an outlet to be outside of her own home. And um, a lot of her, her dark fiction comes from this period where she just feels isolated and trapped and uh
0: I'm not glad that happened to her, but we did get some pretty good fiction from her. Yeah, this is some of the best American Gothic fiction that there is. I mean, she's she's really spectacular. And I'm, I'm glad that this this Netflix adaptation of The Haunting of Hill House has, has brought her name back to the, the fore. And, and maybe that's a book we should look at at some point.
1: I would love to. I'll tell you what, that was my favorite movie as a kid. I think we watched it Almost every Halloween, growing up, The Haunting. That was the original. um, That was the name of the movie. That was the first adaptation of the book. Uh, I I love that movie. I don't think the 1999 adaptation with uh, (laughs) with Liam Neeson and Catherine Zeta Jones really really held a candle to it. And I haven't watched the Netflix one yet, but uh, I'm a huge fan of that
0: story. Oh but that 1999 adaptation, that is one that I saw when I was in the Army, and uh, we actually lived in a house that had a ghost, though that's a story for another time, but so that movie actually really scared me when I was the only person uh, alone in our house because everyone else was working the night shift that, that week.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I believe it. Um, there's just one more thing I want to touch on for this story. You know, we, we often use examples of bad writing to do some workshoppy work on texts, but this is a uh, superlatively. This is a superlative example of good writing. And I'd like to talk about what we can learn from reading something this good instead of the lessons we learned from reading something that's really bad. You know, I, I pointed out during the recap that something that really stood out for me is Jackson's control of language and tone. This was a huge takeaway for me. That tonal shift was so uh, subtle and expertly done that the, just the cessation of using words like laughing or smiling and replacing them with silence or nerves. Just, It's one of those things that you, you kind of intuit you should be doing, but just seeing it done so well on the page really, really uh, jumped out to me. So so what is it about this story uh, for you, Glenn, that makes it excellent?
0: What are your takeaways as a as a writer after reading something this good? Well, I think you've nailed the way that she tells the story, which is expertly done. So uh, I'll fall back on my typical bailiwick here of world building and, and and talk about that a little bit. I mean, she she expertly does this, masterfully does this as well, where nothing is ever spelled out for us, but yet we're able to really know everything that we need to know. We can actually construct a a sort of social history or do a sociology of this town just from little bits of information that she gives us that are really about who individuals are. There's no uh, Tolkienian sort of long extended paragraph that gives us a little history of the town. We don't get any of that it's all through the the dialogue and it's all through small attributions to, to characters. And frankly, a lot of it is actually just done through the names of the characters themselves, as I uh, talked about already, that just looking at the kind of ethnography or the linguistics, the etymology of these names, you can piece together where we are and who these people are. I will say these names, I do think also all have some kind of symbolic meaning of the the cross summers is important graves right that's a, in a story that's about murder that's a fraught name warner old man warner is actually constantly warning everybody we can't abandon this ritual or bad things will happen right there's a name that's meant to call up the salem witch trials but she never calls attention to to any of that either and so i think she builds the the mood with these names and also builds the world with these names and the way she builds the world where it makes us feel like this is a lived in place, not just an imaginative place that she's describing to us as if you know she's telling us about a movie that she saw, which is, I think, what happens in a lot of bad fantasy writing, which is most fantasy writing, unfortunately, that it feels lived in. It feels like this is a real place that makes sense to us. It has weight, right? I mean, we think of that in terms of like CGI, good CGI is CGI that actually has weight. In the world, and bad CGI just doesn't. It looks clearly like it's just kind of on top of it. And this has weight, this world building.
1: Right. And it's all sort of in the technical parts of the craft rather than the creative part. Just saying something like there's a post office and a bank, and between that is a town square, tells you exactly what kind of town you're in. It is a modern American town. A town of 300 people has these institutions. The school being out for summer. This is American history. You know, like the agrarian cycle leads to the creation of the school calendar. It's really relying heavily on uh, the reader's familiarity with the world to make strange. And I just, I think, I agree with you. The world building is is incredibly done in this story. Um, And I also just want to. Say one more thing about misdirection, which ju- I don't know why it jumped out on me, jumped out at me so much in reading this. But by creating a petty conflict about whether or not the box should be rebuilt to fit all the names, so th- is a way to misdirect the reader from paying attention to the really important stuff going on in the story. And I, I don't know if I've, uh, I, I'm gonna have to do some work to, to work on that piece of craft, because I think it's an amazing trick. And I, I just think it's done so well here.
0: Well, one more thing we should say before we, we close on, we're near the end of the episode here. We've not really talked actually about how horrifying the story is, right? This is not a scary story. There was never any moment where uh, I was going to succumb to a, a jump scare or something like that. But the the tension, as you said, ratchets up, it escalates almost arithmetically right as, as we go. And when the revelation comes at the end, i 'm just filled with absolute horror at this that this we 're left with this feeling that this is a a community that might be just a few miles from here, you know a two hours drive from where we are in in Philadelphia, that this might be going on, and we don 't know about it and i'm horrified at that, and I want to do something about it and i 'll say that this was a story that was published in The New Yorker, and it was published the day after the date that this story takes place. this it takes place on june twenty seventh. It was published in the june twenty eighth issue. and people were not unclear that this was a work of fiction, but there was a real sense that this is something real, that this is actually drawn on a real experience, that Shirley Jackson was doing some kind of expose in some way. And The New Yorker received a ton of mail about this. Right? It wasn't fully the, 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 the War of the Worlds, the Orson Welles War of the Worlds, but it had a similar effect on people. People were unsettled by this because of all of these these craft elements that we've we've pointed out. But I think that's really all we've got to say about this story. So that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman.
1: And I'm Brandon Buddha. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com.
0: Head on over to the Clay Temple Forums and let us know what you thought of the lottery. Uh, tell us what you thought about Shirley Jackson's craft. What, what did you think were the real high points of this story? What are the, the expert things that, that you're going to use in your own writing? Uh, we'd love to talk more about writing craft, and especially about good writing craft on the forum.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Next time, we'll be back with the Ammonite Violin by Caitlin R. Kiernan. But until then, we greet you and say farewell.